Well, good morning. Good to see everybody. Welcome into our 11 o'clock service. I'm glad that y'all came. First service was super packed, and I thought, I don't know if anybody's going to be here for 11. I'll just sit on the stage and preach to myself, so I'm so glad uh, to see all of you here. I would have preached to Andrew. He would have definitely been here no matter what, and the truth is he needs it twice, so um, it would have still been worth it. It would have still been worth it. I'm kidding. It's a great... Great guy, great servant. Good to see everybody this morning. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Nate, uh, lead pastor here at our Liberty Hill location. And uh, we are in week three of our mini-series, The Everyday Disciple. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But if you are uh, in here for the first time and you haven't downloaded our app yet, you may want to do that. You can take some notes on there. You can keep up with everything going on here at Vintage Church. And one of the things that you'll see inside the app is our upcoming marriage retreat. It's called Away Together, and it's going to be happening at the end of next month. So we're about a month out now, and we've got a few spots left. I think we've got, I don't know, 10, 10 or 12 spots left. So wanted to let everyone know about that. You can reserve your spot today and pay for the rest of it between now and then, uh, but you do want to get that. They're going to sell out quick, and our deadline is coming up next week anyway. So if you've been on the fence thinking about should I or should I not, you definitely should. And you can, you can register for that today. Uh, in getting into today's message, I just want to recap a little bit. So two weeks ago, we talked about how belief is determined by what you think. You can see it right here on the screen above me. We've got this cool little diagram here that kind of helps you understand how you come to be. And it's really a combination of all of these things, at least in God's design. So first of all, it's what do you think, which again is informed by what you believe, and what you believed, if not informed by God's word, the options are endless. And so your mind becomes literally endless And what kind of things that you could come to believe and understand. So we want to we anchor ourselves. Uh, which, and then that leads to number two, see, how you see the world. Specifically, like, how you see what God sees. How you see the way that the Bible tells us the world is designed. Humanity is designed. The plan for God and people is designed. Like, how do we see that? We want to get God's eye view on things. We discussed the power of personal vision and how to apply it to your life practically. By the way, if you didn't get a personal vision pack, I heard we ran out last week. So we've got a bunch more of them at the host stand for you. Or maybe you thought, man, this is awesome. I need to give one to a few people. Take a few extra. It'll help them out. And so today, we're going to wrap up our series by asking the question, what do you do? What do you do? Think, see, do. The big idea today is that what you see, excuse me, what you think reflects in what you see, and what you see results in what you do. When we talk about doing, there's a lot of options because we all do a lot of things. And there's a list of things that we could do, which is really long. There's a list of things we should do, which is a little shorter, but still pretty long. And so I started thinking, what's the one thing that we as believers should do together? And I think it's this. I think it's this idea. I've talked about this before, but... Yes, Jesus saved you personally, saved your soul, between you and him, all good. But he did not save you unto yourself. He saved you into a family. And so while your faith may be very personal, the truth is it's not private. It's not meant to stay private. It's meant to be shared with those around you. It's meant to be shared with a lost and dying world to give them hope. And it's meant to be experienced among your brothers and sisters so that we can all together help each other grow into the fullness of Christ. It's important to remember. You might be saved personally, but you're saved into a family. In the new covenant, in the new, new covenant of Christianity, since Jesus came to this world, that family is called the church. 
So I want to take a look at the church a little bit today and what we do as a church and why we do it and why it matters. And so I want to first take you to Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 23. I'll read this and then we'll break it down a little bit. It says this, let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. That's God's word, and I want to break this down just a little bit, and then we'll get to our, our practical points. But here's the thing. First of all, what does it say? Let us hold to the confession of our hope without without wavering. That's good. Thank you, Jared. Without wavering. You know why it says hold on to it? You know why it says hold on to it? Because it's very easy to let go of it. It's very easy to let go of your confession. Many people come and confess, I want Jesus as my Savior, and then walk out the doors and live as if there was no God. It's very easy to make a confession and then move on and go into a world where we are constantly bombarded by different worldviews, different ideologies, different ways of thinking, different systems of education. I mean, the entire world is trying to get you to let go of your confession, to let go of your hope in Jesus. This is one of the reasons why every time we receive communion, pretty much every time, we recite the Apostles' Creed. Because it is a confession of faith that believers around the world throughout time have been saying as their confession. What are we holding on to? These things that we believe. And when we do that, it helps keep us close to our confession of faith and hopefully helps us hold on to it. What's the next thing that's said here? Consider one another and provoke what? Love. Provoke love and good works. So many people come into the church, and listen, I've been there, you've been there, it's an okay place to start, it's a really bad place to stay. People come into the church asking this question, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? You don't have to raise your hand, but how many ever ever came to a church and that was the question in your heart? What's in it for me? <clears throat> as we see in this passage, though, as we see in this passage, in biblical Christianity, part of the reason we come together is actually for the sake of others. And this is another kind of way that the upside-down kingdom of Jesus plays out, right? He says, in my kingdom, the first will be last, the last will be first. That doesn't make a lot of sense. Your life is not your own. It was bought with a price. Sure seems like it's mine. That doesn't make a lot of sense. But this is the way it is with Jesus. And he's saying in his word, if you come together and you're a part of a family, do it with others in mind considering the other people around you. So just like Jesus, just like Paul, we're called to spend our lives in service to one another. And listen, I have watched this over and over and over again my whole life. I've grown up in church, I've, I've worked in church and not worked in church, but I've always been a part and always been involved, and I have watched this pattern play out. And it is so predictable, I can predict as easily as I can predict that the sun will go down tonight. That if you come asking that question and you never move on from that question, here's what's going to happen. Eventually, eventually something's going to happen. Something's going to happen. Someone's going to step on your toes. Your expectation's going to get missed. Something's going to go wrong. And you're going to go on. 
that's, that's the way it goes. People go through these cycles. And again, coming and saying, what's in it for me? That's a good question to ask because you are needy. I'm needy. We need Jesus. We need each other. It's a, it's a good thing to ask, what might I be in need of? But when we come together, we decide I'm going to be a follower of Jesus and a part of a faith community. We cannot stay there. And here's a, here again is how it works in an upside-down kingdom. In the end, it's actually the people who decide I'm going to prioritize others. I'm going to be here for others. I'm going to invest my life in others that in the end actually receive the greater blessing. That is a true statement. The more you give to others, the more that you consider others and you consider what your presence might mean to them to show up for other people, in the end, you get the greater blessing. Whereas if you stay in a place of what's in it for me, you're only going to get about what you've got for you. Because <laughs> that's all you're going to have at the end of the day. But it's in giving that you get. I know it doesn't make sense, but neither does a, a God that made you, that came to earth and took your place and died for you and was raised to life for you. And if you can put your faith and hope in that, this is actually easy to believe. And then he says, not neglecting together to gather together as some are doing. Listen, I have to tell you this. Coming together for a, a faithful Christian is not actually optional. People, we look at church as like an optional event that we can go to. There are great conferences. Those are optional. There are great prayer events. Those are optional. Those are great concerts. Those are optional. But look, I'm, I have to tell you the truth. And I, if I'm stepping on toes, I don't mean to. But I'm just, I have to give you the word of God. It's right here. That's my job. Coming together as believers is not optional for the believer. And the truth is, your presence has value in the lives of others, and that's part of why it's not optional. It's not like a twist my arm and make me attend. No, it's me come and be with people who God has designed me to give myself to, to be faithful to. And that's why this is so important. It's why it's so important that you keep showing up, even when you're busy, even when you have other things to do. Even when there's a pandemic, we will not neglect coming together. Hear me now, we will never shut down this church because there's sickness and disease in the world. Now, the school may tell us we can't meet here, we'll find somewhere else. But we are not going to neglect coming together because it's just too valuable that we meet and we see one another and we pray with one another and we walk with one another and we encourage one another, right? It's not a guilt trip to try to get you to be more consistent. It is an, a biblical explanation of the expectation that God has on all of us so that we can receive the greater blessing that he has for us. It's actually good news. Okay, the last part. And when we do all of this, what are we supposed to do? Encourage each other as you see the day approaching. What does that mean? What does that mean, see the day approaching? That means that the last days are upon us. People ask me sometimes, Pastor, are we in the last days? I said, I don't know if we're in the last days, but you're in your last days. And I'm in my last days. So we, we've only got a few left. And what we do with them actually matters. Actually matters. I was reading yesterday, a, sort of, it was a, a post online, but it was a, really a letter uh, from a theologian who has had more impact on the way I see the Bible than literally everyone else that's ever taught me the Bible combined. And he's been battling some things for quite a while. And as I was reading this, he's, he's saying the, the cancer in his body has moved. It's started pancreatic. Now it's other places. And essentially, uh, he's got a week to maybe a couple of weeks left to live. And, um, and, of course, we'll continue to pray and send him whatever information we have that might be helpful. But the, 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 the bottom line is he's at a place saying, I, I've done all I can do. I've run my race, and now it's up to you to take what I've given you and make it useful. 
And I have to tell you, if we approach every day that way, every day, like it's our last, or like we just have a few left, and then we prioritize, not ourselves, but others to encourage as he did. I've run my race, but you still have yours to run. I've done what I can do, but you still have more to do. I've given tools and put them in your hands. What are you going to do with them? Those are the kinds of things that we can do, that we can support one another with by encouraging. Listen, the world is getting darker out there, and we need each other. If you've got a neighbor sitting next to you, tell them, you need me. You need me. I need you, Pierce. I need you, brother. Listen, it's true. We need each other so that we can hold fast to our confession, to our hope. Because on your own, you'll let go. But when other people come and say, oh, don't let go, don't give up, don't quit. You'll only lose if you quit. You can do this. Jesus is worth it. Your faith is worth it. Your life is worth it. Your family's worth it. Your kids are worth it. When people come alongside you and say those kinds of things, guess what? You don't let go. And while we're talking about the church being the church and doing, I have to just quickly hit Ephesians chapter 4 just as a reminder for you. It says this, Jesus himself, speaking of the Christ, it says this, He himself gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Hear me when I say this. If you're a membership class last week, we talked about this. Every member is a minister. Every child of God who is called upon the name of Jesus is a minister. Another place in the New Testament, it says, we're all priests and kings unto God. Uh, I'm going to kind of make fun of it. It's okay, I just will. But like, I don't wear the high church costume that says I'm better than you because I'm not. We're all kings and priests unto God. We're all brothers and sisters under the banner of Christ. And and I just have a different job, right? I just, I'm, I'm a mouth. Maybe you're a hand, maybe you're a feet. We'll get to that in a few minutes. But I just have a job to encourage you, to train and equip you so that you can be the minister. And some of your ministry will happen inside the body to each other. And some of your ministry will happen outside in the world, in the mission field where God has placed you. But every one of us is a, mem- is a minister, and our job here is to help train and equip you. So with that in mind, I think it's helpful if we just sort of think about the church like a greenhouse, like a safe place where you can grow together, grow closer to God, closer to one another, and more into the image of Christ. Here's the thing, immediately after you surrender your life to Christ, you are now part of the family of God. And that family plays out in the context of a local church just like this. Now, I'm not going to go all the way into this today, but I'll just tell you, if you read through the first few chapters of Revelation, specifically chapter 3 and 4, what you're going to find is Jesus himself speaking words of both encouragement and rebuke to seven churches. Not to seven individuals, not to seven people, but to seven local churches. And the reason that Jesus spoke to the local churches is because that was his framework. That was his design. Go and make disciples. Plant church here. Plant church here. Plant church here. Plant church here. Jesus comes and then he speaks to the churches in those places. And the reason that he could actually speak to a community and then reach the people within it is because they were together in distinct communities. So what is a community? What's a community? There's a lot of definitions out there. Uh, Webster says it's a feeling of fellowship with others as a result of sharing common attitudes, interests, and goals. I'll say it like this. A community is a group of people in unity. A community is a group of people in unity. So when you think about community, you think about what a community produces. 
Some communities produce things that we don't like, right? Like we want to stay away from communities that produce toxic, unkind, unwelcoming, difficult people who are just mean all the time. You know, think about like the chain of restaurants that's always bad service, always grumpy, never quite get your order right, food's usually cold, nobody's signing up for that community, let me go there and eat, let me go hang out, let me go and be like them. But then we sell out the places that do it well, so we pull up to Chick-fil-A and we try to get there early because we know there's going to be a line, but it's 11.30, why is there already 45 cars in line, it's only 11.30, don't you people know lunch starts at noon, but you get there and then you look at it and you think, do I really want to wait in the line? Yes, I do, because when they hand me that and I say thank you, they're going to say, my pleasure and then I'm going to experience pleasure when I bite into that awesome Christian chicken and it nourishes my soul and then we think maybe I could work for Chick-fil-A I like this place (laughs) that's the kind of community that we want to create so practically speaking what creates a healthy church family or community hint it's not a school building it's not average lights Or really good sound. Thank you, Jason, Eric, and worship team. But it's not actually any of those things. Let's look a little deeper at what a biblical church community looks like. So with that background of Hebrews and Ephesians sitting there, let's dive into this. Number one, the local church is God's family. It's important that we get this because we all care about family. We care about our family. And if we can actually begin to see our local context as a spiritual family, it'll change everything. And by the way, this is, again, how God releases power. Remember our verse, our key verse from There Is More, Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within, say it, us. The power that works within us. Church, there is so much us, we language all throughout Scripture. God is a God of community. As a matter of fact, God exists in community. I don't have time to preach to you about this either, but we're made in his likeness, a perfect trinity of Father, Son, and Spirit, living in a perfect community of unity for all of time. And out of their mutual love, deference, and unity, you and I came into existence. It's already there from the foundation. But in the church, how does it work? I think sometimes churches are just spiritual versions of what happens in the natural. You're born into a natural family or maybe you're adopted into a natural family. Somehow you come and you have a nuclear family. And in that nuclear family, you grow, right? You grow. You learn things. Your body gets bigger. You get stronger. You grow. In spiritual family, we do the same thing. Now, we all come in at a little different starting points, some of you a little further down the road than others, but part of our job in the local church is to help people wherever they are. There's a reason Paul said in 1 Corinthians, I'm going to give you milk to drink, not solid food, because you're not yet ready. In fact, some of you still aren't ready, so sometimes you're going to get some milk. Some of you need some T-bone steaks, so we're going to give you some of that sometimes too. But the point is, we all start somewhere at different stages, and our goal in the church is to help you grow to the next stage. You guys hear me talk, I'm a little bit of a college football fan, so you're going to get some of that from time to time from me. But you know who the very best college football coaches are? They're the ones who can take a one-star, a two-star, or even a five-star and make them better over time. It's called player development. And the ones who can actually develop their players are the ones who become great. You want to actually know why the Texas Longhorns have been sucking wind for so many years, even though they recruit all these awesome players? They haven't developed them. They come in pretty great, but they stop, and everybody else keeps getting great. And so then they're stuck. That's the reason why they've been where they've been. In a a local church, 
We don't want to be that. I don't want you to come in here and just stay where you are. So we want to be a greenhouse that helps you grow, which, by the way, growth comes through strain, pressure, effort, challenge. And so sometimes you're going to get some of that kind of stuff here. But it's all just to help you and me grow to the full measure of Christ. I hope that that is something that you want. The next thing about community that we have to understand, number two, and I've kind of already said it, but we'll unpack it a little bit. God's family requires unity. I mean, the word community doesn't exist without the word unity tucked inside of it. Amen. And it's it's only possible to have godly fellowship and godly community through unity. Jesus says in Matthew 12 that a house divided against itself cannot stand. Amos 3.3 makes a uh, proverbial truth point when it says, can two people walk together without agreeing to meet? No, they can't. You got you to meet up. You want to go for a walk? Okay, cool. Where are we walking? Where are we going to meet up? You have to have a playbook of unity to even be able to take one step together with someone else. And again, the Apostle Paul, he describes the body of Christ as an actual body. 1 Corinthians 12, 18. Let's look at this. But as it is, God has arranged each one of the parts of the body just as he wanted. And if they were all the same part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. Or again, the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. Now see, sometimes people, when you use the word unity, what they hear is uniformity. Oh, pastor, you think we're all supposed to be the same. No, that's what cults do. That's not what we do. I'm not asking you all to be the same, but I am saying there's some things that we do have to have in common. There are some things that actually matter. So I'm going to do like an extra preacher thing here. We've got our big list of three. I'm going to give you another list of three inside number two. This is why your notes matter. It will help you track with what we're doing here. I want to give you quickly, as a part of number two, three things that are required for church unity. Number one, we have to be unified in purpose. We have to know what our purpose is. We want to have unity? We have to have shared purpose. Thankfully, Jesus gave three distinct commands that makes it really easy and palatable for us to actually agree on a shared purpose. Let me give you what our purpose is, which I believe comes from Jesus directly to us. It says on the night of his resurrection that Jesus appeared to his disciples. You can read all about it in Mark 16. But what he said was, go and preach the gospel to every nation. I would say this, go and reach the lost. That's what he said, go and reach the lost. You want to be a part of God's family? You can't lock the doors and hide. You have to go and reach those who are still lost. The process by which God saves almost every person that ends up being saved is by sending someone like you to tell them. Go and reach. Number two, he says in here, uh, two weeks later, he goes up to a mountain in Galilee and he tells his disciples, go and make more disciples. I read that as build those who you reach. Again, you read about it in Matthew 18. Excuse me, Matthew 28. Build those who you reach. So first we reach the lost. That's part of our purpose. Then we help build those who come in and make disciples. Part of our purpose, all right? And then, again, Jesus says at the Mount of Olives before he ascends into heaven, he tells them, you need to get one thing before you go and do. And that is the power of the Holy Spirit. He sends them and says, you wait for the power of the Holy Spirit to come. Now, guess what? Now the Holy Spirit came. It's available. He's available for you and for me. So what's our shared purpose? Our shared purpose is to reach, build, and do it all in the power of the Holy Spirit. I hope we can agree on that. If we do, we have unity. Ultimately, at the end of the day, our shared purpose is actually just to do what Jesus tells us to do. He says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. He goes on to say, who are my brothers? 
my sisters and my mother. It's the ones who do the will of my Father. Uh, us following the words of Jesus is what makes us family. So Jesus commanded that, all right? But then we've got this. Number two, we're unified in belief. So we have a shared purpose. That unifies us. And we have shared belief. This is why we have doctrinal statements. If you haven't read them, you should because it tells you what we believe. But it all comes from, you guessed it, the Word of God. And here's why we do that. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as a separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and it's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Our beliefs start and stop where the Bible starts and stops. So we have that as our foundational playbook. I have to tell you, it's pretty amazing to me to watch professing Christians who literally abandon the word of God in the name of love. This happens all the time, all around us. Let me tell you something. God is love. When we operate according to his word, his will, and his ways, we are loving. And when we don't, we are not. Abandon his word, doesn't matter what it feels like, it's actually unloving. And that's a hard paradigm to grasp, but it is true. And this is why the word of God is the standard. Paul says to, second, to, to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, here's what he says. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness so that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped in every good work. Listen, the Bible is what we need. The scriptures matter and they give us the playbook for our life. And listen to me, if I'm starting to lose you, let me just bring you in. It matters because it affects every single thing you do, every relationship you have, every job that you have, every thought that you have. If we aren't anchored here, we're literally untethered. Like uh, the balloons in the ceiling up here, they're not where they're supposed to be because they got untethered from whatever was supposed to hold them in place. That's what our lives are like when we let go of the word of God. And the third area that we end up unified, if we can have shared purpose and shared belief, then we end up with something called shared culture. Shared culture. Let me tell you, the virtues of God's kingdom are different than the values of the world's kingdom. The virtues of God's kingdom are different than the values of the world's kingdom. The culture of the early church, they stood in contrast to the culture of the world. And when the culture of the world seeped into the church, it began to dis unify them. It began to actually break them apart. And you start to see problems happen when the culture of the world infiltrated the culture of the church. There's a reason that we're told, be in the world, be in it, but don't be of it. Be in it, but don't be of it. We are supposed to love and engage this world, but our culture, our ethos, who we are, are not marked by the same values that the world has. And where the world has good values, I bet you they came from God's word. <laughs> because other Christians at other points in time infiltrated their society with God's word. And we're to do the same. Let me give you an example. The world says greed. Go get all you can. The kingdom of God says give. Give all you can. The world says it's okay to hate people who hate you and do things to hurt you. The kingdom of God says love your enemy and bless those who persecute you. The world says, oh, it's okay to rage and go riot and burn things down. The kingdom of God says, no, we're supposed to be makers of peace and peace bringers everywhere we go. We're talking about two very different cultures that exist in the same place. The world says the most important thing about you is the color of your skin. The culture and kingdom of God says your skin's beautiful because God made it, but it's not as important if you're, than your heart, which should be surrendered to him. That's what matters the most. The culture of the kingdom of God is different than the culture of 
of the world. And what did John tell us about the world? 1 John 2, 15 through 17. This is, a, this is a hard passage to understand. We'll talk about it for a second before we wrap up. 1 John 2, 15 through 17 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride in one's possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world with its lusts is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. What's John saying there? Is he saying that we shouldn't love the planet? No, that's not what he's saying. Christians should care more about creation care than all the environmentalists. God made it. He gave it to us to be stewards of. Is he saying hate the people in the world? No, he's not. He's saying love the people. What he is saying is that there is a culture in the world. There is a worldview that is opposed to God. And we cannot love that worldview and want to play in that culture and also at the same time say that we love God and we want to live according to his ways. They're just incompatible. I'm not omnipresent. I can't be here and in my home at the same time. Neither can you be of the world and of God. There's a choice to make, and you get to choose it. That's the best part of it. But he is saying, hey, we have to love the people in it by giving them what they actually need that's different than what they currently have. Okay, all right, finally as we close, let me tell you the most important reason that unity among God's people in the local church matters so very much. This is why it matters the most. Unity among God's people attracts God's presence. Unity among God's people attracts God's presence. Psalm 133 says this. I'm going to go old school King James on you. You ready? Because it's beautiful how it says it. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It's like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down to the skirts of his garment as the dew of Hermon and as the dew that descends upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. There's a lot of poetic language there, but what he's trying to communicate is this idea that where my people dwell together in unity, there in that place, I will command blessing to flow over your life, over your family, over your job, over your community, over your church, over everything inside your stewardship. But it's done as people dwell together in unity, where they prefer the other above themselves, where they make a habit of showing up instead of not, to be there for one another. I love this picture that we get, and I'll close with this from Acts chapter 2 of the early church. It says this beginning in verse 46, and then I'm done. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple, and they broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And every day the Lord added to their number those who are being saved. Listen, there's a pattern here for us. I'm not saying that we have to be exactly like the church of Acts. There's a way that God built the church and he showed it to us for a reason. But one thing we know is that every place where God has done something great, it has been marked by a community of fellowship among believers. Even missionaries who go and they're the only ones who knows Jesus. The fruit comes when the people come and they begin 
to live in community. God has exponents that he attaches to groups of people who have shared purpose, shared vision, shared values, shared culture, all of that to come together and say as a testimony to the world. There's another scripture. I won't even give you the whole thing right now, but it says they will know that we are followers of Christ by the way we love one another, by the way we prefer one another above ourselves, by the way we live our lives being spent for one another. And as we look forward into this year, we're, we're sliding out of January. We're already almost one month down. As we move forward in the rest of this year, I hope that you can keep this framework of think, see, do together. Asher, can you put that slide back up? Think, see, do together. You'll notice on this slide there's a few elements to it. You see the bird, which represents the dove, the Holy Spirit, ascended on Jesus like a dove. The Spirit of God has to be in the mix. Across from that is the Bible. It's the Word of God. It has to be your foundation. And at the bottom, it's a, it's a picture of a building, but we're not a building. We're a people. It's the church. And when you allow the Spirit of God, the Word of God, and the people of God to be a part of how you think, how you see, and what you do, you will see that your life will matter and make a difference more than you ever thought possible. Bow your heads with me. Let me pray for you. God, we thank you that you've called us to a purpose, on purpose. Lord, that you have called us into a family, not to be out on our own. God, I thank you that, that you, you haven't taken us and said, okay, I'm going to send you all by yourself to wander in the desert to just be miserable for 40 years to figure things out. Lord, I thank you for the new covenant. God, I'm glad you were with Moses and you did what you did with him, but I'm thankful that there was something better for us in the new covenant, and part of that something better is your church. It is your family. Lord, I want to pray for every person here in this room today. I'm actually not going to call anybody out today. I just want to pray for you, but if you're sitting here and thinking to yourself, man, I I'd like to be a part of that family. I just don't know how. Whether it's that you need to make a commitment to Jesus or you just need to make a, a commitment to the church or maybe you need to reaffirm a commitment to the church, I want to pray for you. And if you are one of those who wants to say yes to Jesus when our service is over, we'll have some prayer partners up here at the front ready to pray with you about that and put a devotional in your hand called Start Here, a 21-day guided, uh, guided devotional to help you follow Jesus well. If you want to say yes to him, come and do that. But right now, I want to just pray for every person in this place.